0: Welcome to the UCL Physics and Engineering and Medicine podcast. I'm Gemma Bale, here with Jamie Guggenheim. Hi everyone. We're meeting researchers from our department to learn about the latest research in medical physics and biomedical engineering. This week we're talking to Professor Sandro Olivo, Professor in Applied Physics from the Advanced X-ray Imaging Research Group.
1: Enjoy! Sandro you're in an advanced x-ray imaging group so I guess a logical starting point is to ask you about x-ray imaging as a means to building up to knowing about advanced x-ray imaging so
2: could you tell us about x-ray imaging? So that actually is a very good question because when people ask me what I do and I tell them I do research about x-rays, they're all like x-rays, they're very old stuff. So what can you do with x-rays these days that hasn't been done before? Maybe they sort of have a point because (laughs) the discovery is 1895, right? So 125 years ago, first Nobel Prize for physics. So quite an important discovery. But the thing about it is they've been done in exactly the same way for well over a century. So we think it's time to change all that. And we think we can change all that by going about them in a, in a different way. Now, why are they important? Well, if you look at the number of examinations performed in a hospital in the UK, for example. Now, I haven't checked the exact numbers recently. As far as I remember, if you sum up every other modality, you get less than a third of what you normally do with x-rays. So that they're used very, very widely. But the other thing that is really interesting to us, to me in particular, is that they're all over the place. So you mention X-rays and people think, okay, medical, maybe some people think security, but actually there's very few areas of science and technology that do not rely on X-rays. The industrial testing, biology, drug development, preclinical imaging, there's a huge range of disciplines that rely very, very heavily on X-rays cultural heritage, you name it. Really, there's hardly a field you can mention. It doesn't rely on x-rays. The angle there is that if you can make a step change in x-ray technology, then the impact will be very wide and reach across a large number of fields.
0: Why are x-rays so useful in so many different areas?
2: Because they go through stuff, (laughs) more or less unlike anything else. You can penetrate pretty much anything by regulating the energy of x-rays. And (laughs) They tend to go in a straight line, which is another great thing about a type of radiation. You have nuclear medicine, which is still ionizing radiation, different energy levels, so they have their own application, which are quite separated. In the same sort of application range of X-rays, you have MRI and ultrasound, which are all amazing, and some emerging technologies, photoacoustics, there's a number of things going on all that, many visible light applications. They all have limitations that X-rays do not have. Spatial resolution is a typical one. Cost, exposure, time, MRI is absolutely amazing. But as you know, it's very, very expensive and typically acquisitions are lengthy and spatial resolution is limited. You can push resolution a bit, But then you have to increase your acquisition time by a significant amount. So our vision really is to try to develop some sort of best of both worlds where we have the speed, the spatial resolution and the cost effectiveness of x-rays coupled with, for example, the soft tissue sensitivity of MRI. So this is what we're trying to go for.
0: So how do you do that? Because my limited knowledge of x-rays, as you shine them through the body and they get blocked by the bones and then you see a shadow of the bones on the screen.
2: Exactly. That is the best description of x-rays, of existing x-rays. They work exactly like that. And indeed, another beautiful thing about x-rays is that, you know, Rengen discovers x-rays in October, November, something like that. And a couple of months later, he produces an x-ray of his wife's hand. So he immediately recognized the incredibly powerful potential in medical applications. That was absolutely evident. But so far they have been working exactly like you described them. So you take a shadow of the internal parts of an object and that works based on the principle that some materials tissues absorb more x-rays than others. And therefore they will stop more x-rays. And if you have a detector behind that object, you will see a shadow type image, which is great and works very, very well in many applications. However, whenever you have attenuation coefficients that become very very similar that's the degree of attenuation suffered by x-rays when they travel to different materials then your image disappears for example tumors in soft tissues are a typical example where they attenuate in a very similar way like healthy tissue so they're difficult to detect and and another example is where the detail that you want to detect is very very thin if you have a thin detail and X-rays go through it, and even if the attenuation of this detail is different from the background it is immersing, it could be that the, the path length, the amount of the, the space that X-rays travel to this detail, is not enough to significantly change the overall attenuation, so again you will not see it. Which is where we try to use a completely different physical principle to get image contrast, which is phase changes.
0: What's contrast? <laughs>
2: Yeah, so when you look at an image and you have a difference between two areas in that image, how much one stands out from another, you can assign a number to it to express in percentage by how much one stands out, and that's what you call contrast. So, for example, if you see a a thick bone and it's very white in a black background, that's lots of contrast. And if you've got something very faint, which is a darker gray in the same black background, this is much lower contrast. So you can think about it in terms of differences in grayscale, if you imagine a a black and white image where white and black is maximum and any difference between small, similar grayscale is a small contrast. It's light and dark, isn't it? (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) What does phase change mean?
2: Okay, so the best way to picture that is probably to think about speed. X-rays are waves, very funny waves or a very high wavelength, but waves nonetheless And waves do a number of different things when they travel through matter. And the part that interests us is that they change speed. So imagine you're sitting on a beach and you're looking at waves coming at you. And imagine there's a big spot of oil right in front of you in the middle of the water. And imagine that when the wave front goes through this oil, then the speed of the wave front changes. Imagine you don't affect the intensity of the wave. So the height of the crest stays exactly the same. So there's no attenuation, but the speed is different. So what happens after the oil is that you're going to delay or advance the part of the way from that went through the oil so that you have the footprint of whatever you've gone through in your way from. And mm. you can try to exploit that to generate image contrast. And that so far has never been done. People have started to explore it in the last maybe 25 years because they got access to very specialized facilities referred to as synchrotrons. So effectively, the great news of what we do is we've been able to do some of the things that people only thought were possible at synchrotrons using a conventional X-ray source, which is what you need if you want to translate all this technology into a clinic, for example.
1: X-rays for 800 years, they've been used in this kind of way of just throwing through things, getting shadow images, which is super useful. But there's this other information we can get if we look at the phase, not just the intensity of the X-ray that's gone through an object. But this can only be done using specialized equipment. And you mentioned synchrotrons. So why is that? Why do you need these hefty pieces of kit?
2: I'll have to use a technical term here. And the technical term is coherence. But we can explain it in simple terms. In order to see these mechanisms, you have to be able, A, to have them in the first place, and B, for them to be sufficiently clear, not mixed up with background stuff, so that you can recognize them. For example, I gave you the example of the bent wavefront. You can use this bending in the wavefront in two ways to generate contrast. One is you let it propagate and hope that it interferes with the remaining part of the wave. So you have some sort of oscillations in the pattern that you collect. Initially, people thought that that was the only way to do it. And in order to observe these oscillations, you need your source to be coherent, in particular, specially coherent. And what that means is it has to be a very small point from which all the X-rays generate, and this has to be distant in space. So typically, if you go to a hospital, your source is several millimeters, fractions per millimeter actually for the most advanced application, but it's only going to be 60, 70 centimeters away from you. So when people develop these accelerator machines, for the first time, they manage to have the source of radiation 10, 20, 100 meters away from them, which means that if you look at something which is maybe the same dimension, say a millimeter or a fraction of a millimeter, but you place it 30 meters away, then to you, it will look like a point. Radiation coming from a point is coherent, and coherent radiation going through different materials and taking different speeds will then interfere, meaning you can pick up what we call technically an interference pattern, i.e. oscillations in intensity. However, if that were the case, then you're confined to specialized facilities, a phenomenal toy for the physicists, lots to play with, beautiful experiments, but no hope to translate. So... We've observed that actually there is another manifestation which is difficult to pick up, but is there nonetheless, which is a refraction. The direction of an X-ray, any radiation for that matter, is orthogonal so 90 degrees to the wavefront. So if you have a flat wavefront, all your X-rays go in the same direction. If you bend the wavefront, it means that locally you're changing the direction of X-rays a little bit. So, most people would be familiar with refraction in the visible light regime. For example, if you have a straw in a glass of water, yeah, and you see it bent because of the different refractive index of air and water. So, that's refraction, and it does happen for x-rays just like it does for visible light, only it scales with the wavelength, Wavelength of X-rays is about 10,000 times smaller than the wavelength of visible light, which means that the refraction angles that you want to pick up are also about 10,000 times smaller. So the angles you're after are of the order of a microradian or a few micro radians, which is a very small angle indeed. To give you an idea, take a millimeter, place it a kilometer away, and the angle subtended by that millimeter a kilometer away is a microradian. But wow. if you create a machine that can be sensitive to such small angular deviation, you're in the business and you can do stuff.
1: I feel like I might be able to create such a
2: machine as long as I was allowed to put it a kilometer away. Right. So but but actually a millimeter, a kilometer away is a micron, one meter away. Mm. And the micron, which is you know, a thousandth of a millimeter, is something that you can easily measure in any lab these days. All right. So this is what we do. We create masks with holes in the tens of microns range, say 10 microns for simplicity's sake. We place one before the object and one after the object. So the first one will define beamlets of x-rays, about 10 microns across, and then you've got another detector that intercepts these beamlets. The moment your object deflects the beamlet by one micron, say, then the amount of radiation that your hole on the detector mask intercepts will instantly change. So by playing this trick, you are converting a phase effect, which is refraction, into an intensity variation, which is the only thing your detector understands. Basically, you're kicking out some x-rays from the hole that you have in front of your detector, and instantly your detector will see fewer x-rays. And then you can play your sort of mathematical tricks to convert this into the phase changes generated into the first place.
0: That's really cool. And what kind of tissues does that mean you're able to be sensitive to? So no longer just bones and really hard structures in the body. What, what can you pick up now?
2: Yeah, so we've experimented with a wide range of things. What we have basically demonstrated we can see is we can see most soft tissues. We've got projects on breast where we see breast tumors quite easily. We recognize the edges and in particular, we have a project where we try to detect clear margins. That's a project where we are imaging tissue rejected in breast surgery. Breast surgery used to be based on mastectomy where the entire organ was removed. Luckily these days, that's not the case and people do what they call breast conservation surgery, they only remove a lump of tissue where they think the tumor is. The problem you have is then you have to make sure that you have removed the entire tumor, right? So what happens at the moment is that that piece, which is being rejected, is sent to the pathology lab, and then you get an answer back in two to three weeks. If they do find something, it's terrible because you have to call the patient back. So this is someone who had an operation, they've been told the operation went well and everything is fine. And after two to three weeks, you have to tell them actually they might still have cancer, they need another operation. So this is a disaster, first and foremost, from the patient perspective and the anxiety this all causes. And it also has cost implications for the NHS because you have a number of repeat operations. So since we know from previous experimentation that we can see changes in soft tissue like breast tissue very, very well, and we can detect the tumor margins, We've created a machine that we will hopefully soon be able to install in an operating theater, which can do a full three-dimensional scan in a matter of minutes and basically tell the surgeon whether the margins of the lump of tissue that they have resected are clear or not. And if not, then they can resect more tissue, preventing future reoperation. So that's one example. Other areas are, we're looking into es- esophageal tumors, and the esophagus is a very complex organ with multiple layers of different tissues. And if you take a conventional x-ray image, it's all a blur, but we do resolve mucosa, submucosa, the various muscle layers and all the different things that you need to see in order to determine whether there is a tumor and try to stage it at the same time. So these are just two examples in medical applications. There's many more in other medical and non-medical applications.
1: They both sound extremely valuable. I'm interested in this way of detecting phase information, how this links to these new things that you can see. What What is it about these tissues that mean that you can see them using phase x-ray phase imaging, but you can't see them using standard x-ray imaging?
2: So what happens here is that we are incredibly sensitive to small changes in electron density. Electron density just means how many electrons you have in a unit volume, and is effectively a proxy for density with some caveats conventional x-rays at low energy are dominated by the photoelectric effect, which is mostly driven by the atomic number. So if you have tumoral, neoplastic breast tissue and healthy breast tissue, effectively you won't have a change in in the type of atoms you have there. You'll have a reorganization of the tissue that typically makes it stiffer and denser. So that the atomic number doesn't change, but the density changes, which means that the speed of the x-rays going through a denser tissue will change, creating the effects that we've talked about before and right. therefore giving me a signal that you wouldn't normally have with conventional x-rays.
1: I mean, both of those examples that you've given, it sounds like such a compelling idea. What are the hurdles that mean that we don't already have this?
2: Well, we just finished a project that demonstrated that that was possible. Right. right. So we went from very early images of very small specimens of breast tissue where we demonstrated we can see stuff that was invisible before, And then we used that to make an argument with the Wellcome Trust that funded the project that lasted three years, based on which we, A, modified the scanner we had in the lab at UCL to enable it to do relatively large specimens in 3D. We used that to do a statistical trial. We've imaged about 120 specimens. And all these specimens were also imaged with conventional technology. So we had to do usual blind tests where you score how many features you pick up in one case, how many features you pick up in the other, compare the results and, and make sure you have a difference, A and B, that the difference is statistically significant so that it really means anything. It's not even not haven't just been lucky when you've used the face control scanner. Armed with this, we've opened the next stage of the project, which was building a pre-clinical or pre-commercial prototype with a company that could be placed outside an operating theater to run the tests in real time. And the scope of that was to demonstrate that the technology is compatible with intraoperative use, that you are not disrupting the clinical workflow by introducing this new machine. That was the three-year project to demonstrate that these two things were both possible because there are the two pillars on which you can plan a clinical trial. So the next step would be to do a clinical trial. The second part of the project that I talked about meant that this machine is clearly not approved for clinical use. So just to give you an apparently counterintuitive example, the surgeon was not allowed to see the images. They effectively asked that we made sure that they could not see the images because if they did, it would have influenced them and they might have acted on a patient based on information received from a non-approved piece of technology.
1: Right. So, I mean, all of this comes together to say you've got to be really absolutely sure it does exactly what you think it does.
2: Well, it's a massive investment and companies tend to be a bit risk averse. That's probably a euphemism. So, yes, you have to sort of know what you're doing before you proceed to the next step. And every next step is typically 10 times more expensive than the previous one. Right. They last a long time. You know, you have to set up the clinical trial. Maybe it's multi-site, so you have to build two or three copies of the machine. You have to create a community, a medical community at every hospital to help you with the clinical trial, statisticians to do the analysis, run it for a year or so. So that will take two or three years. And if it works, then then maybe you get FDA approval, Food and Drug Administration approval, for example, that enables you then to use it clinically. And that means that you're exposed for two or three years. Any company that will be engaged in this will be exposed for two or three years during which They wouldn't get any revenue at all.
1: So it is risky
2: business. It's easier with software where maybe you can just, you know, trial it on existing images with limited investment compared to developing a completely new hardware and new technology that you you try to put out there for clinical use.
1: It's a really good overall description of the hurdles you have to jump through to get a new device into a hospital, for example. And being used by a surgeon, I feel a bit like it's entirely justified that it's like that. But at the same time, it's really frustrating that you can't help but imagine that behind these kind of cash barriers and time barriers, all this effort must be a lot of good instruments that can't be funded into existence.
2: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And, And, you know, on the verge of how successful this project has been, we're now reasonably confident that it will happen one way or another. But for example, targeting intraoperative specimens was already a bit of a trade-off compared to going straight for in vivo imaging, because that's even riskier. It has the added complication of radiation safety and all that. This is a mechanism that we've devised by which we can still have a clinical impact with slightly lower risk. The idea being that if we put it out there and people see that it works, then scaling it up for in vivo use will be easier.
1: And in vivo use, would it look something like the way that traditional x-rays are used, that it could be used in all different areas of medicine, imaging
2: whole humans? You'd probably start from quotation marks low hanging fruits and considering all this work that we've done in breast specimen imaging, one obvious area of application to me is mammography where you could do much more sensitive screening, possibly at lower dose. One important aspect I haven't mentioned is that because of the way we use x-rays, we don't need them to stop in tissue to create an image. Conventional x-rays, as Gemma described very effectively before, you have some that are stopped in the tumour, others that are stopped, possibly fewer in the healthy tissue, and the difference in how many you stop gives you the image. So the creation of the image inherently requires radiation to be deposited radiation dose to be deposited in the tissue. Mm-hmm. All I need is for my x-rays to be deflected, so I'm only too happy if they come out the other side. Now you can't stop them from interacting because they will, but what you can do is you can try to choose the energy at which attenuation is minimized, but if they still deflect you still get your image, so you do have an angle on significantly reducing radiation dose which I hope to be able to see in the future.
1: It makes a lot of sense. I suppose it's not obvious to me that there's not another step where you sort of want to coax more of the x-rays to not be absorbed and to be deflected. That would be ideal, but you're probably never going to
2: persuade physics to do exactly what you want it to do. No, physics tends to do what it wants. So, yeah, it's a bit difficult. But, yeah. but can you can have a factor of uh, an order of magnitude gain, for example. We had one example where we got dose reduced by a factor of ten. That's Which quite, quite impressive. Isn't it? You can do 10 times as many screening tests with the same risk or yeah. the same number of screening tests at the 10th of a risk mm. or any or any combination, any intermediate solution. So to me, it's, it's worth.
0: the images that you can produce. The work I've seen from your group has been mostly quite small, really d- high detail images. Could you do sort of a whole body like X-ray CT sort of scale, but with the resolution that phase contrast can give you?
2: The short answer is yes. For the interoperative scanner, we scaled up from the four or five centimeters that we have in the lab to about 12. That was because we ran a survey of the average size distribution of all these specimens across various hospitals. And we realized that the 12 centimeters, we capture more than 90% of them. And we've got another example where we went up to about 20-ish because it's about industrial inspections. However, what we're talking about here is mostly contrast, not resolution. A resolution is an issue of your detector and how big is your pixel. What we provide is a mechanism that gives contrast from features that normally don't have any. Things that will be invisible or transparent, if you use an optical equivalent, become visible. The resolution is something that you just tune depending on the application. So that determines what detector you need to use. The detector will determine how we design the masks that we need to introduce to gain the face sensitivity and then it, it sort of work backwards from there. Detectors tend to have 2,000 pixels times 2,000 pixels. There are exceptions where you have 3,000, maybe 4,000, but not more than that. So you always have a trade-off between resolution and field of view. Take your field of view, divided by 2,000 or 4,000 if you've got money to spend, that's the resolution. We do have a trick to improve on that. The moment you introduce (laughs) the mask, the aperture in the mask is smaller than the pixel, because I briefly told you before, I want one of my beamlets for every pixel, Mm. So, so that I don't reduce the original resolution of the detector. But actually having the aperture smaller than the pixel means inherently I have access to a higher resolution. If we do little steps of the specimen or the imaging system, and the steps are equal to this aperture, and then we combine the images we produce, we can access a resolution that is driven by the apertures in the mask, not the pixel. So it can be better. You'll have to pay for that with a bit of a longer acquisition time because of this stepping business you have to go on about.
0: You've been working on this for a a long time. Your group's been quite established in medical physics. Did the group become about because of the medical need for improved resolution of different tissues or did it come from the knowledge of the x-rays and knowledge of the phase contrast technique? How did you start developing this idea and this research?
2: To be honest, I started it before I came to UCL and the driver was medical. So some other groups, in particular a group in Australia and a group in France, had shown that with synchrotrons and other specialized sources, you could get this sort of improved contrast. At the synchrotron in Italy, we had a program to try to use synchrotron radiation for medical applications in humans. And we thought, oh, this is a perfect match. We have the synchrotron, we want to use it in humans. Why don't we do this face contrast business and see what happens? Mm -hmm. And that's how it started. And we took it all the way to the point where we really had the patients into the synchrotron. And the results are indeed amazing. I started to wonder whether that was what I really wanted to do. Take the patients into the synchrotron rather than the other way around. Take the technology out of the synchrotron so that you could use it everywhere. And that's the reason why we started off at UCL with the idea of trying to translate the technology initially developed at Synchrotrons into a conventional lab as the first step towards larger scale translation. And then by doing that, we found out, of course, that there are many other applications in security, in industry, in biology, which is how we diversified range of applications that we are pursuing and how the group grew accordingly.
0: And what's your background? Are you a physicist or a medical
2: physicist? Actually, I'm a particle physicist. How I ended up doing all this is I did my dissertation on detectors that were initially used for particle tracking in high energy physics experiments. And we've realized that they could be used to do imaging with they were actually a very good match for use with singleton radiation detectors for high energy physics imaging singleton radiation and then the phase contrast. And then I had all my ingredients and I sort of built it from that.
0: Mm. You mentioned that you've got so many diverse other applications. So could you briefly sort of go into some of those?
2: Yes. So we had a program on finding explosives, which is quite interesting. And <laughs> I, if you told me that 10 years ago, I would have laughed. So it's possible. So what happens is that I've described you one way of using phase to creating images, which is by looking at the deflection of these beamlets that we create with the mask. There's another way to go about it, which is you can look at how the individual beamlet gets broadened. So if you send your beamlet through a homogeneous material, normally it doesn't get broadened. If you send it through a material which is microscopically inhomogeneous, Then the sort of refraction at the edges business that I told you about happens on all these microscopic speckles that make up your material. They're smaller than your pixel, so you'll never see them, but they will send the x-rays in all possible directions because there's very many of them oriented in all possible ways. And the overall effect is a broadening of the beamlet. So as well as measuring the deflection of the beamlet, you can measure the cross-section of the beamlet and see whether it has increased and by how much it has increased. And if you're very careful, also if it has changed in shape. Now, this tells you a lot about the microstructure of a material. And you can use it to probe different materials and distinguish them from one another. And we tested this on on a number of explosive materials. And we saw that the sort of signal that comes out is very, very different and very powerful at recognizing them. So that opened that line of research. Similarly, this sort of broadening effect happens whenever you have micro cracks, porosity, microfractures on a very, very small scale, micron or even submicron, which is very, very good for all the industrial testing where you have micro cracks, voiced porosity defects on a scale which is too small for conventional systems to be able to pick up. So that instantly created two new areas of application.
1: That's amazing, isn't it? It really sounds like this phase x-ray technique is useful
2: everywhere. Well, this is a bit our angle, so maybe not everywhere, but we see a lot of areas where there is a benefit. I
1: can't remember <laughs> I did, who it was. I did want to ask you, I've seen one of your images. Is it an ant? It's an insect. Is it the hair on a fly or something like that?
2: You might be referring to one of the very first images we've taken in the lab. That is, a, if I remember correctly, is a ground beetle, which we have on possibly permanent loan from the Natural History Museum. An insect, maybe I shouldn't say this in the interview, maybe we should cut it later. Well, you cut that out <laughs> Insects are very good at testing phase contrast methods because they have a lot of microscopic features. And people were used to see these things at synchrotrons. And one of the first tests was, are we able to replicate that sort of extreme image challenge in a conventional lab? And in that case, we were able to detect individual hairs on the leg of a beetle, which people had seen as synchrotrons before, but being able to see them using a conventional x-ray source, that, that was a good moment. And And clearly, it proved that we did have the face contrast sensitivity that we wanted. Almost like a preliminary test before we went into real applications, if you want. Yeah. Then if you find a beetle vet who needs to test (laughs) broken knees on a beetle, then give us a call and we can do that. (laughs) Can you explain what a synchrotron is? Yes. So it's quite interesting, actually, because they came out almost by accident. Synchrotron radiation initially was considered the parasitic effect. People wanted to build particle colliders because you want to understand how the universe works and and what everything is made of, right? So initially you had linear colliders and you didn't have a problem. You had very long tubes inside which you would accelerate particles, smash them together, try to understand what happens. Then you reach the limit in the energy that you could reach with the linear accelerator. And people said, OK, we have a great idea. Why don't we create a circular accelerator so we can keep accelerating particles on a circular orbit and increase the energy almost as much as we like, which is a great idea. And indeed, these days, almost all colliders are circular, are rings. However, if you accelerate a charged particle like an electron, then immediately you will release electromagnetic radiation. And accelerating doesn't mean only, you know, in a linear acceleration or deceleration, like braking or pressing the accelerator in your car, but bending a trajectory in itself is an acceleration. So the moment you put charged particles in a circular orbit, you start to emit electromagnetic radiation. And that radiation emitted is synchrotron radiation. So initially, this is just energy that you lose, right? And you have to introduce radio frequencies or other devices in your ring to give like a little kick give back the energy that the electrons have lost because of synchrotron radiation. But when people started to look at the properties of this radiation, they understood it is quite amazing. And in many respects, it's very similar to a laser. If you do a parallel with visible light, so uh, synchrotron radiation is a bit like a laser where a conventional X-ray source is like a light bulb, which is when people started to realize that they can use this parasitic radiation to do very good science with, especially to begin with material science, the study of solids using diffraction from crystals or reflection from surfaces or what have you, which is when people decided to start to build machines where you wouldn't smash particles against each other. You would circulate them always in the same direction just to produce this beautiful parasitic radiation, which is goes under the name of synchrotron radiation. And this is very tightly collimated in the vertical direction because of relativistic reasons, which are a bit complicated, which means that you don't disperse it when you increase distance as much as you would, just like a laser, if you want. And that is what enables you to go far away and still have a very strong beam that you can do experiments or imaging with.
1: So obviously we can't see these things with our eyes, but somewhere out there next to these giant synchrotrons are giant X-ray laser beams.
2: Well, you wouldn't see them because they run inside the pipe, which is typically a vacuum pipe. Because, of course, if you run them through air, you would lose a lot of them just by interaction with the air atoms. So typically you would have a pipe which you evacuate and you run it inside the pipe so that you don't waste radiation. Very cool.
0: Do you miss high energy physics? You're really excited and passionate about it when you're speaking.
2: I don't miss working at synchrotrons because we do go to synchrotrons very regularly. The synchrotron for us is the gold standard. It's the clear, clean, perfect environment. So whenever we have a new crazy idea, which we don't know whether it will work or not, we try it off at a synchrotron first. Because if it doesn't work at the synchrotron, then just forget about it. There's no way you can make it work in the standard lab. While if you make it work in the synchrotron, then you can try to think about mechanisms to translate it. So because of this, we do go to synchrotrons three or four times a year. In terms of high energy physics, I miss the idea of it. But the experiments themselves involve thousands of people, which means you're a small wheel in a massive machine and you don't have the full picture of what's going on. Someone gives you some data and you have to check whether parity is violated or something, and then you pass them on to someone else. So even though the idea of what you're trying to understand is phenomenal, the actual specific work is a bit, how to say Well, boring. I think I found it, to be honest. (laughs) I, I wouldn't want to put any student off energy physics, which is an amazing, beautiful field. I just like more the idea of an experiment where you have five, 10, maybe 15 people all working together, all speaking to each other every day. And where everyone has the full picture of what's going on and what we are all doing at any time. I think that's beautiful.
1: And then after, you can go and read a book about the latest development in high energy physics and talk exactly. about it down or the or pub. will give
2: a call to my old colleagues and try to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: perfect. Well, there's enough
2: of them by the sounds of it. <laughs> when we say that what they do is boring, without that technology, we wouldn't have most of the stuff we enjoy these days. Pretty much all of our detectors come from high energy physics experimentation. And many other fields of science have benefited so much by the extreme developments that these people have to do to measure the very sophisticated effects that they need to measure to understand parity violations or gluons or to find the Higgs boson or what have you. Mm-hmm. So, very, very important. Most technological developments are born from the extreme frontier research.
1: Absolutely. We've talked about an image of a ground beetle. I just wondered have you imaged any other unusual subjects?
2: Oh, very many. <laughs> <laughs> not your Some lab of members. Which might not be appropriate for this interview. I can tell you one. When did the Human Tissue Act come into force in the UK? Do you remember? About in- 2000. Exactly. So, late 90s, I was doing face contests with the synchrotrons, and we had this UK group that came over with all sorts of stuff. Because before the Human Tissue Act, you could easily get access to specimens of all kinds. So, this group comes over... With the finger of an old lady, ethically approved and donated to science, of course, everything was absolutely fine and absolutely kosher. And the problem there was to try to understand how two tendons in the fingers cross over one of the knuckles, because there was some sort of fine detail that was still, for some reason, not understood. So this finger had the two tendons sticking out at the bottom, and we would CT it in face contrast, because face contrast enables you to see the tendons very, very well with the finger straight up, and then we would pull the tendon so that the finger would bend and image it again, and then compare the images. So the experiment worked beautifully. And then these guys left and forgot the finger or the (laughs) synchrotron. And then the legislation in Italy was way more complicated than it was in the UK. So getting rid of this thing was very, very difficult. and, And no courier would pick it up and take it back to the UK. Eventually, we found one that was prepared to do it. So they come over with this bucket of dry ice. We give them the finger. Sorry, no pun intended. stick <laughs> dry ice, take off. The van leaves and we have a little toast and we celebrate that the finger has eventually left it. We <laughs> go back to the bean lane, start planning the next experiment, give it two hours. We get a phone call. And apparently the van had an accident. <laughs> meaning they couldn't cross the frontier anymore. And after two hours, the finger came back. (laughs) That's another two weeks. But we've imaged everything. We've imaged bread as it cooks, pasta as it solidifies. We've imaged the fabric used to make sails. We've imaged fragments of old artistic manufacts. You name it. We've really tried a bit of everything.
1: I think that's exactly what you should do when you invent an imaging technique. You should image absolutely everything with it along your way to doing everything else. Excellent.
2: A key moment in the development of the group was we were given free range by means of a phenomenal funding tool, which was called the Challenging Engineering Award. Now, that was a beautiful award that doesn't exist anymore. And it worked more or less like that. You have a bright idea. We like it very much. We think it has potential. It's possibly crazy and it might never work out. But here's a million pounds. Go on and explore it. Do what you want with it. It sounds very risky. But I think it's great. And we do need that sort of wonky, crazy funding tools to explore unusual ideas if we want to make something happen. And what we saw after that is that research became a little bit more focused on impact in general terms, which is a good thing, so practical applications. And if you start off with a very specific practical application in mind, don't get me wrong, that's very, very good in in 80% of the cases. But if you only do that, then you limit your ability to explore widely and you might be precluding yourself the chances of making genuine discovery-led new findings. People looking at silicon to begin with liked it because it had four valence electrons, but they weren't thinking about the possibility to build a computer. If they weren't given the possibility to do that, we would not have the computer. Mm. So I think we need the research focused on impact and translation, but we need to keep some of it open to do blue sky crazy stuff to keep innovation going. Absolutely. the final message?
1: Well, thanks to Professor Olivo for sharing his research and career with us. This was a University College London podcast presented by Gemma Bale with myself, Jamie Guggenheim. It was produced by Billy Dennis with music from Kevin MacLeod. If you like this podcast, please do share it. Gemma and I will be chatting with a new researcher at the end of every month covering a different area of medical physics and biomedical engineering.
0: If you're interested in studying with us at UCL, please visit our department website at www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash medical hyphen physics hyphen biomedical hyphen engineering. We have undergraduate and master's courses including study by distance learning and PhD vacancies which can be found online. You might also consider following the department on twitter at UCL medphys m-e-d-p-h-y-s. Bye for now!